Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to The Parenthood. From the moment our children are born, we develop an animalistic desire to protect them, to keep them safe from a world fraught with dangers. Worry is a big challenge to new parents and something that sometimes goes too far. But what are the true risks to children living in the first world? Are we worrying pointlessly about things that aren't dangerous while ignoring those that really do pose a risk? With me today, I've got my sister, Dr. Kiara Hunt, who as a family GP has a good window into the real risks children face in their day-to-day lives. Kiara, thanks so much for joining me today. Hi. So I'm interested, when do you think is the most dangerous time in a child's life in terms of sort of age-wise? Is there an age which is particularly risky for, for young children? I think we're lucky in that our children actually are presented with much less risk in their lives than children were historically. And there are most aspects of our children's lives are very safe. But of course, every day poses risk from the moment we're born to the moment they step into the car to drive it for the first time themselves. Um, So and we as parents worry about that. Of course we do. Um, Anecdotally, probably the most dangerous day of your child's life is the day they're born. You know, that is dangerous. That is why we have good antenatal care. That's why we are looked after by professionals during the birth so that we can mitigate the risk that birth poses to to our children. But that is, that's probably the most dangerous day. (laughs) And from then on, um, it it depends, doesn't it, when they're little babies and they're they're wrapped in swaddling clothes and they are, um, they can be completely and utterly protected by us. Um, Their life, you know, they're relatively low risk, but as soon as they can crawl and then walk and then make their own friends and uh, go to parties on their own and drive their own cars and motorbikes, risks go up a little bit. Yeah, I think worry is one of those really difficult things. So I think, you know, talking to new parents like we do on the bump class the whole time, you just see them being driven mad by worry in the pregnancy. And, you know, I remember having had a miscarriage first time round. It was just eating me up that I thought, is this baby alive? Or is, And until you can start feeling those kicks, you don't really know. But I guess that's why it is important to have good antenatal care to go to the midwife appointments when you know do your scans it's also important to worry you know if we didn't worry we wouldn't be protecting our children it's but it's about getting that balance right as to um how much we need to worry and it's very easy to look back you know when you've got older children to to worried new new parents and think you know what are they worried about their child is you know is perfectly all right and they're they're in this little bubble of of young young childhood Um, but when you're there and it's your baby and it's your first child you do you worry about everything I you know, remember there's that one. anecdote of uh, of um, 
remember being told it and it was sort of really rang true when I'd had more than one child. It said, you know, when your first child is in the sandpit playing and they eat sand, you sort of rush them to A&E because they've eaten sand. Your second child sort of wipe away their mouth and, uh, and uh, you know, don't worry too much about it. And your, your third child eats a lot of sand and you sort of worry if they really need their supper. <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know, I, I do think as, as new parents, I remember being very worried about uh, cot death yes. and that kind of, you know, whenever they slept really well, thinking, oh, my God, are they still alive in the morning? That yeah. sort of fear, of that sort of joy of, oh, my God, it's seven and they haven't woken up. <gasps> but are they alive? Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, I mean, how big a problem is uh, cot death? It's, it's much less of an issue nowadays, isn't it? It is. And there's lots of, you know, very sensible guidance that we all are given when our babies are born about how to look after them and, and reduce the risk of that as much as possible. So it, it is not um, nearly as big a risk as it used to be. Um, but obviously, you know, that's something that, that most parents that I speak to will still say as their children grow up and are sleeping in big beds they still check on them every night before they go to bed they still put a hand on their chest and check they're still breathing uh, um, although of course they don't need to do that it's just it's just what we do as parents and obviously some parents get those mats that monitor the children's breathing or you can get little socks that monitor mm-hmm. their heart rate mm-hmm. how necessary is that I don't normally suggest that unless you've been told specifically by by your pediatrician or doctor that your child needs that when they're very young um, I think it often causes more anxiety because your ch- child, especially as they get older, are able to sort of roll off it. And you know, I had a, had a patient the other day whose toddler was still on one of those mats, and he'd worked out that if he if he crawled to the corner of the cot and stood on his tiptoes, then the mat alarmed, and his parents came running in. So he kept he thought it was hilarious and kept kept doing that. Um, so I think in the right circumstances, of course, it's it's useful, but but certainly not everyone needs those. And you mentioned that obviously being a human has got a lot safer our life expectancy is longer but also more of us will get to old age mm-hmm. and the big determinator in that is is the advent of vaccines isn't it well it's yeah it's the it's it's us uh, winning the battle against infectious disease um which which has been uh, largely not totally but largely done by by successful vaccination programs so you know pre-vaccination families would have you know multiple children up to you know 10, 12 would be completely normal. And that's because they would expect a proportion of those children to die in, in, in childhood. That was normal. You, you you had brothers and sisters that would die when they were children from infectious diseases. Um, we, we don't have that anymore. Our families are smaller as a result um, because we don't need to have the insurance policies. But, you know, increasingly vaccine hesitancy is becoming a problem. Mm-hmm. So I guess it's it sort of must be quite frustrating as a doctor knowing what the risks are of these vaccines, of the, of the diseases yeah. that the vaccines prevent and still finding that some people are hesitating about yeah. potentially And, you know, we've done podcasts on, on specifically vaccinations and, and, and the, why they're so important. But I think part of it is... is those diseases are not in our life they're not in our psyche we don't see them happening and therefore we get quite complacent about them as as you know as is naturally the case if we were living in a society where we regularly saw children dying from preventable infectious diseases we wouldn't be no one would be hesitant about vaccinating um so um so it is it is difficult to see to see people making those choices um especially once you start to see those diseases actually going up, once you start to lose the herd immunity that, that vaccination programmes give us. Um, so, so, yes, I think without doubt, if you want to mitigate a significant risk in your child's life, you will, you will, you will vaccinate them. Vaccinate. I would also be organised about vaccinations mm. because 
it's, you know, the, your doctor won't necessarily get in touch and say, mm. oh, your vaccinations are due. And it's really important for them to have the boosters mm. too, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, in this country, we have the Red Book where we um, record all our children's vaccinations. The doctor records all the children's vaccinations. And it's very, very clear as to what they need and when. And most countries have something similar. So, yes, that's something we can do is make sure we're on top of that. Um, and we're you know, taking the children to all the appointments that they need to to be fully vaccinated. And obviously education is quite a big part of, I think, keeping your children safe in so many different spheres. But also, presumably, as your children do get a little bit older, you know, introducing into your family sort of narrative, like, why do we have vaccinations? Why do we look after our health? Why, you know, well, educate- like why do we brush our teeth? Why mm. do we, you know, look left and right when we cross the road? Um, it's it's all part of helping educate them uh, about risks that the world uh, face that they face in the world and allowing them to begin to take the responsibility for those risks and that's one of the hardest things as a parent is is stepping back and allowing them to make those choices yeah I remember chasing my children around the room. I think you were actually chasing them around the room trying to give them a vaccination and they were like <laughs> we don't want to have them and we were like well fine get measles then <laughs> But, you know, some people I think would say, oh, I don't want to scare my children telling them about all these horrible diseases. But at the same time, I think it's quite empowering to know that humankind has got to the stage where, you know, we're really powerful and we can actually prevent against yeah. really nasty diseases yeah. that two, three generations ago were absolutely not preventable. Oh, I, I often find that obviously when they're babies, they have no idea. But as they get older and they begin to understand, uh, parents who've had conversations before they've brought them to me for their vaccinations um, about why you know why we do this and um, and and what we're trying to achieve, it, it, the children, even as young as three, um, understand. You know, they they get a bit of that, and it makes it easier, certainly for the doctor. Yeah, and you can tell them, you know, you can sort of bring to life antibodies. I remember talking to my children about sort of fighters mm. being introduced into their into their bodies that were going to fight all the nasty diseases off. Mm. And fine, really wasn't quite scientifically correct, <laughs> but it allowed them to sort of visualise why they needed mm. to have this, not even that painful, but unpleasant uh, vaccination mm. in order to keep them safe. Mm. Absolutely. And obviously, as they get a bit older, um, you know, toddlers seem to have a sort of death wish, don't yeah, they? <laughs> Even as they're lear- yeah, just learning to crawl. I mean, you know, once your ba- when your baby's just sit lying or then sitting and they're just on the mat with a few toys around them, you think, oh, OK, well, they're OK. As soon as they start to move, you know, most parents have sort of panic attacks because they can get at the other side of the room or to the top of the stairs or to the knife drawer, you know, within seconds. Um, so, and they do seem to have a death wish, you know, for sticking their fingers in the socket. So, of course, you know, baby proofing your house when you've got a child that is um, on the move is really important. It's actually really easy to do. It's just a case of of doing it, you know, get so thinking, okay, my child is now at this stage, I need to buy the plugs for the sockets, I need to buy the corner, you know, for the sharp tables, uh, corner the protectors, stair gates. the stair gates. Um, I need to, uh, now my child can stand up, I need to lower the cot to the bottom level because so often I'll have the parents, I was going to do it, I, was, I thought talked about doing it this morning and of course he, he, you know, fell out of the cot today because I hadn't done it in time. So um, so it's just, yeah, thinking about it and being practical. It seems like a bit of a sort of design flaw that children are so risk averse when they're sort of learning. I remember mm. with, I think especially Iona, you know, I trying to teach her to go downstairs bottom first. She would always try and go down head first. Mm. And I was like, no, no, bottom first. And after about six months of doing this, I remember thinking... Do you know what? She just has to learn. I and I got... Less a, than six months. <laughs> <laughs> I remember getting, like, 
we have just like three stairs and then at the end I put some dog beds and I just let her go down head first and she got real fright she didn't hurt herself but it was definitely something that she needed to do it kind of made her realize so presumably there is an element of them learning no, from their absolutely mistakes. I actually think that's really important I think um, that's part of the development of the child if we completely wrap our children in cotton wool and I have parents saying to me oh you know I think he's learned to call I'm going to make him wear a helmet um, and elbow pads and knee pads and you know just in case he hurts himself and actually that's that's although I can understand the um the sentiment sentiment behind that it's not it's not the right thing to do children do they need to be supervised to make sure they're not doing anything that's truly dangerous but they also do need to understand the effect that whatever they're doing is is causing you know so that so that you know if they do stick their hand in a drawer and it closes it it hurts you know if they do tumble a little bit down a couple of stairs it hurts and they won't do it again so. and I mean I guess that's the idea around playgrounds too you know mm. they're curious they want to mm-hmm. isn't there an idea that the worst thing you can do as a parent is help your child up the climbing mm-hmm. frame because mm-hmm. then they are more likely to get stuck at the bottom if you leave them they'll generally never mm-hmm. go higher than they can get down mm-hmm. again well and you also see actually um, uh, second or third or subsequent children are usually much better off in the risk category. They've learned to fend for themselves much earlier, much quickly, quick, more quickly, and much more f- effectively um, than our firstborns, who we who we you know, shield too much, probably. But I suppose then, as they do get older, I remember thinking like scooters were a total death wish. You know, <laughs> seeing children in London scooting at high speed towards them, high towards speed. Towards, and I, yeah. I, it wasn't even my children, and my heart was in my mouth. But I think one of the things we always did early on is that they always wore helmets when they were on scooters and bicycles. Mm. And mm. I've got to put my hand up and say I do, didn't always wear a helmet on a bicycle. But then I thought, do you know what? If I'm asking my kids to do that, I have to do it too. Yeah. And just with simple things sports, like that, with which, skiing or with bicycling or with yeah. anything uh, that we as children might not have worn helmets riding horses you know we have to lead by example and you know if we want to if we want to eliminate the risk we don't let them do anything but that's not good for the child so we need to mitigate the risk by protecting them as much as we can in a safe way allowing them to enjoy whatever it is they're doing and children learn you see three-year-olds scooting towards a your carriageway and they stop <laughs> you know um, it's you know it's it's amazing, but also it's amazing how quickly a habit is formed by putting on a helmet. Mm-hmm. I remember well, you and I taught our kids to ski together, and I'd never skied in a helmet, and then we both took that decision that mm-hmm. actually we did have to wear them. With, we mm-hmm. were asking the kids to wear them, and within a few days, I felt really naked without mm-hmm. a helmet on. Mm-hmm. And actually, if the one thing we can do is kind of create a habit of wearing a helmet, that means that when they are sixteen and we're not around to say. Lou, don't remember your helmet. They will just automatically reach for yeah. their helmet. And in of the course, way that, that again is working out what is risky enough to um, to warrant that. You know, I think putting a helmet on when your child's learning to crawl, when they might knock their head and get a, a bit egg on their head, is different to preventing a serious injury from being knocked off your bicycle or scooter or you know skiing. Yeah. So it's just about you know working out that we can protect them or we can try, but it needs to be appropriate for the situation. Yeah. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I mean, one of the things that we always hear horror stories about again are kids drowning. And that's obviously dangerous if you've got a swimming pool, if you've got a pond. I mean, children can drown in a small amount of water, can't they? It is definitely something, um, while they're still quite little, and this is not little, just toddlers laying to walk. This is any child who can't swim or who isn't dexterous enough to get themselves out of a situation. Um, You need to be so cautious around water, any sort of water. And if you've got a pool, is you know, putting all the protective gear in place, all the safety gear in place, the alarms, the gates... Um, to to prevent that happening because it can happen so quickly. You can have you can get little uh, wristbands for your children, can't you? Um, that as soon as they come into contact with water and a, a big alarm goes off, yeah, there's um, those. There's ones you can put on the pool itself if you know if, if any anything goes into it. There's there's all sorts of there's all sorts of pool safety devices you can use. Um, but um, and I think usually if people have a pool and young children, they have those things. It's it's when you find yourself suddenly in a situation that you're not necessarily expecting there to be water, or uh, if you're going on holiday and it wasn't just quite what you expected, and um, people aren't concentrating. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I mean, I've got to say, I think unless you're going to go somewhere where you absolutely know the pool is secure, it's, mm-hmm. it's not really a holiday because yeah. you're just living in fear the whole time. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And children drown silently. Yeah, they're not shouting and screaming. Yeah. And very, very quickly. Yeah, no, water is probably one of the biggest risks um, to young children. So again, what can we do for that? We can do take all those safety precautions. We can also try and teach our children to swim as early as possible. And those, you know, swimming lessons can start when they're babies, um, and uh, and you know they can be independent in the water, you know, really from quite a young age. Um, so that's that's worth doing. Yeah, I um, remember when Ludo was being taught to swim. One of the first things he was taught was to, you know, jump in, turn around, and go back to the side. Yeah, yeah. Sort of the early thing, or even sort of flop in before they can yeah, walk. They exactly. would sort of sit on the edge, flop in, and then and then develop that reflex to turn around and grab onto the edge. Do you see a lot of trampoline injuries? I mean, I know that trampolines now are very, very popular. Um, yeah, a speak lot of to people... any A and E doctor, <laughs> and they will <laughs> never get a trampoline <laughs> um, because it's such a common A and E injury. And these are um, injuries as opposed to deaths, no, obviously. Absolutely. And, but we're talking about risk, and there's you know, risk of death is 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 tragic, but it, and thank goodness is much less common. The risk of of injury, you know, broken bones, dislocated joints um so so but trampolines uh yeah, thankfully they of course do cause death as well but generally it's injury and uh and um uh you know i think they're great fun children love them so if you're going to have one just make sure you've got you know the safety sides around it or you've got the you know you're, you're maintaining it often it's trampolines that just haven't been maintained so they've got rough you know broken metal bit on it that the child cuts themselves on or they've some of the elastic you know spring has come off so the feet get feet get stuck in them that sort of thing so if you've got it maintain it make sure it's safe especially as your children get older because we do that perfectly when they're five and they get the trampoline for their you know christmas present but then when they're 15 and they're on the same trampoline with their friends and you're not even in the house 
and they're doing triple flips and everything else, that's, that's when they get um, that's when they get really injured. Yeah, yeah. But it's a great way of keeping your child fit, that's being true. on a trampoline. Yeah. No, it's... I mean, we, we, our children use trampolines all the time. So, you know, it, it's, it's not that you, don't, you shouldn't have one, but it's, they, are, they are quite a common cause of minor injury. Yeah, I mean, and presumably, I remember when I was little, we'd have those trampolines with no sides on, but they were still raised from the ground. Presumably, those mm. are the worst. And nowadays, actually, mm. what you see much more commonly are the, the big circular trampolines with the kind of net around that yeah. is much more safe. Yeah, absolutely. Just thinking about what might be dangerous that we're not really acknowledging as dangerous. Um, one of the statistics that kind of reassures me but also <laughs> frightens me is that I'm a bit of a nervous flyer I always get slightly sweaty palms when I'm in an airplane mm-hmm. and um, someone said to me the real risk of uh, travel or long distance travel is not getting on a plane it's driving a car to the airport because mm-hmm. actually statistically driving is a lot more dangerous than flying absolutely and most and, of us spend a lot of the time in the car and a lot of the time with our children in the car whether that's dropping them at school or whether that's you know taking them to their friends to play or taking them on holiday um driving is probably one of the most dangerous things we do with our children on a regular basis yeah and especially uh, and today when we're quite distracted i mean now we've got mobile phones in the car yeah. and although arguably you know i remember learning to drive and trying to read a map at the same time you know that <laughs> i mean i don't know how i didn't crack i remember yeah. so well having like a giant map and thinking right where is this turn yeah trying to navigate you know this great big thing in the car yeah. uh, but but you know I've also seen people texting while on the motorway mm-hmm. in fact I was I was driving into work the other day and I there was a woman putting her eyeshadow on while she was driving quite fast mm-hmm. behind me I was like mm-hmm. looking in my rearview mirror going mm-hmm. are you crazy <laughs> yeah but I guess you know just being really strict about those distractions because again we're teaching our children aren't we um the the difficulty is is that when you're driving with a little baby they're often a big distraction aren't yeah well they, the, the child the themselves car. are often the children themselves are often the distraction i mean the phone we all know about the phone we all know we should lock our phone in the glove cabinet or shut it there on the beginning of the journey and not touch it you know link it via whatever technology you have to your phone so you can still answer calls but not look at your phone but that's easy to that's easy to do it's easy to say when you've got a baby screaming in the back or children fighting and pulling each other's hair out and arguing um or or actually being dangerous in the back of the car taking their seatbelt off and climbing into the boot it's it's very difficult not to be distracted well so uh, that that's you know it's driving with our children is probably like you said one of the most dangerous things we do I mean I remember one of the big uh, revelations for me when I had a small baby was that realization that as long as you can turn the airbag off you can actually strap the baby in their car seat Mm. into the front seat and I think it is marginally more dangerous than being in the front but when you take into account then the likelihood of distraction because I just remember so well driving and my baby would kick off and Mm. you think well what's wrong have they just I don't know spat their dummy out or is there a wasp that stung them mm-hmm. you know and I just didn't know because they were rear facing in um the, the back of the car yeah. so actually having them next to me yeah. was so much more reassuring and I think probably safer in balance yeah absolutely and also just having in in your head um a plan if things do kick off with toddlers in the car you know that actually rather than trying to sort it out while you're driving them down the motorway you pull over you stop you get off at the next junction you, you sort it out. You don't try and deal with it while you're while you're driving at sixty miles an hour down the down the motorway. Yeah. And then of course, you know, our car our cars are of course much safer than they ever have been. Um, you know, when when we were children, when 
when we were children, I think we were still, our Moses baskets were just still put in the boot of the car without any seatbelts. And that's just how babies were transported. Horrifying yeah. thought now, well, isn't it? That now, you just, you know, just Moses basket, like a piece of luggage, just put with the baby in the boot. Yeah. And, and the no dog. children And the dog and no, the rest of the children just sort of playing in the back seat with no seatbelts on. Um, you know, that's very, in cars that, that didn't have particularly impressive safety features when you compare them to cars today. Yeah. So we are, we're definitely, but then we're driving faster. There's a lot more cars on the road. Well, you know, I'm I'm a big one about safety, um, which is actually very convenient because our sponsor for this episode is Volvo, and they do they do have the the reputation for being the safest cars around. Yeah, Volvo was always the family car when we were when we were children. I think it still is, isn't it? Yeah, it is. But I mean, for them, you know, safety was always the big thing. They invented the three point seatbelt, and these are the things that have made a ginormous uh, difference in terms of kind of road deaths, yeah. and I mean, especially considering how much more people use our roads and how many deaths um, are prevented but you know I was reading that initially when the seatbelt was invented people were really anti it and saying oh no it's not going to save anyone's lives it's restrictive you can't force anyone to wear a seatbelt and now you know liberties I would not even think about getting into a car without putting on the seatbelt and actually now and obviously most modern cars there's a quite annoying beeping although actually in the Volvo it's it's quite a pleasant sort of please put on your seatbelt it doesn't actually say that but uh, it's it's not too aggressive which I think is 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 quite nice but actually I was just looking at the um at the safety features um and I mean, that Volvo are really committed to ensuring that Volvos are the safest cars, but also they're trying to ensure that no one should get seriously Rarely injured or killed. In yeah, in, in a Volvo. And so they're sort of, they were thinking about how they can ensure this. So they've limited the speed in a Volvo to, I think, I mean, it's still fast, it's like 112 miles an hour. But they also have this, uh, this care key so that you can then program your car to go different speeds according to who's driving it. So when you're sort of 17-year-old says, Oh, Mum, can I borrow the car? You can say fine, but you're not going to go above you're seventy. Using this or, key. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Which actually is such a clever idea because you don't want to say no. I'm not going to let you drive because actually I'd rather let my responsible teenager drive themselves than then having to be forced to get into someone who's drive drunk or something like that. And then obviously, you know, as we get towards autonomous cars, you know, these um, Volvos have great safety features in terms of, you know. Do you remember the blind spot? Do you remember when you were learning to drive? I was terrified about this blind spot because literally when you're changing light lanes on the motorway, you know, look in your mirror. and But there is, there's like a meter where you don't see. And I, it freaked me out, the blind spot. Anyway, now you've obviously got the sort of blind spot activation system and often the car is sort of braking before you even manage to. So um, it is it is amazing actually what modern cars can do. And I think... You know, that is what I want to invest in. You know, ultimately, well, when you're choosing in what, what you, where to spend your money, I suppose when you're you know, starting a family, looking after your family, a safe car is going to be something you are you'd be sensibly investing in. Yeah, absolutely, and and, and also the types of car seats you're going to put in that car is no, you know never buy a second-hand car seat. You know, you don't know if that's the car seat's been an accident um, or been damaged in whatever way. Always spend a bit of extra money on on good quality safety equipment like that. Some of these cars, I think, even have built-in car seats now. Yeah, yeah. No, our Volvo does the booster seats, which is perfect because actually, I think often people don't use a car seat because they have to do a short drive and it's a bit of a hassle to put the car you know and actually most accidents happen really close to home so it actually is really important to use car seats to put your seat belt on even if you're doing a short drive as tempting as it is not to yeah and also I guess we're setting an example aren't we to our children you know we're 
they're learning from us. And if we're driving sensibly and we're not distracted by phones and we pay attention to the speed limit and we don't drink and drive and we put our seatbelts on, these are all things that they're going to be more likely to do. I'm not saying they're definitely going to do it because they've seen us doing it, but they're more likely to take that seriously if they see us taking it seriously. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I'm dreading that, you know, that time when our children are sort of old enough to drive and we sort of hand them a driving license. I just remember so well driving with your younger sister, Olivia, first time on the motorway. And that, my God, that aged me about 20 years. I was so (laughs) worried and so concerned. But then you also remember being that 17-year-old and and having that freedom and that responsibility for the first time and how, how liberating and exciting that was. And our children, they're little now, but they will grow up into hopefully responsible teenagers and adults and it should be so we should be excited about giving them that that freedom that even though it does carry of course it carries risk with it and of course you look at statistically most accidents happen in in the in the under 25s Mm. um boys men especially yeah and but i suppose to you know building trust is more likely to make your child trustworthy whereas if you basically signal to them i don't trust you i'm not giving you my car over my dead body you driving my car um then, you know, they maybe are more likely to disrespect you and to take risks. Whereas if you say, listen, I know you're only 17 and I know you've only had your driving license for two weeks, but I am going to let you borrow my car because I trust you're going to make the right decisions. Then I mm. guess there's, I mean, it's like depending on the personality yeah. too, yeah. you know. Yeah. We, we can tell the risk takers, can't yeah. we? You know, us, <laughs> us parents can, can tell that. Yeah. Um, no, I think so. No, cars are important. And then, of course, there's the other things around the house that we haven't really mentioned, but that for young children are actually for whole families are a risk that we can mitigate so you know things like um you know fires and poisoning and you know little children you know those multicolored dishwasher tablets that yeah, look, look like, like the most tasty sweets ever are so dangerous if they're ingested and of course they're now you know covered with warnings and saying you know keep out of the reach of children but most of the time they're under the sink where which is the first cupboard that, that toddlers get into so being aware of those sort of things um, you know, making sure your house is properly fitted with smoke alarms so that if there is a fire, you you all, you know, can get out quickly. Um, s- simple things like that that we don't necessarily... I remember doing fire escape practices when we were little in our family house where we, you know, we knew we were on the top floor, we knew how to get out, up onto the roof if there was a fire. Um, you know, un- when your children are a bit older, making sure they understand that, you know, you've, ta- you've had that conversation. Um, that's that's that all those things we can do to... to help medication you know we get a bit blasé about sort of mm-hmm. uh, over-the-counter medication but you know or I even a, prescription medication that yeah. you just leave by your bedside table that actually how easy is it for your child to just work out what this little pink pill is oh i'll pop it in my mouth oh it's got a little sugar coating because they all do that tastes quite nice and it's actually highly toxic for a child mm. yeah so just being just yeah, really sensible sure, yeah. locking things yeah, up locking things up keeping things out of the reach of children yeah yeah I mean, as they get older, too, um, I mean, one of the things that we sort of don't really want to think about yet, but, you know, sexually transmitted diseases are Yeah, so prevalent, moving up into risks and older yeah. children. And we say older, but, but you look at, you know, the prevalence of sexually transmitted diseases and it's highest in 15 to 23-year-olds, um, you know, and we don't want to think of our teenagers being sexually active until they're sort of happily in a committed relationship. And that is just not going to happen. Um, and teenagers are sexually active and they are going to be at risk of, of things like sexually transmitted infections, 
um, you know, HPV virus, because so, of course cancer, pregnancy, um, all those sort of things. We worry about you know, alcohol and drugs, but we should also be thinking about these things. So, and I think this, that's all about education. It's all about the, the conversations from a young age of, um, of, of risks and what, you know, even if you don't feel confident or comfortable talking to them, giving them an, uh, someone that they can talk to, be that their doctor or an aunt, you know, sort of younger aunt or uncle or... Yeah, exactly. Or you know, and not necessarily relying on school for that uh, for that conversation because yeah. I think that's sometimes quite a hard conversation to have in a in a big classroom. Yeah. But just someone that they can. I mean, actually, you. I mean, presumably, a lot of people talk to their doctors. A lot of yeah, children I have a lot of, I have a lot of, of t- over the years. Lots of y- younger teenagers that parents have talked. You know, come to me and said, you know, can is it okay if she comes to talk to you or he comes to talk to you about about you know getting a period for the first time or you know what you know what about you know what about when I when they become sexually active what what precautions should they take what how can they mitigate any risks and I have those conversations regularly and it's relatively easy to have as a doctor with someone you know quite well sometimes it's harder as a parent depending on how the how those conversations have evolved during childhood yeah yeah um, and what about the HPV vaccine? Should children be having that? Does that Absolutely, offer yes. quite a lot of yeah. protection? Absolutely. So that's the vaccine they have when they're in their early teenage years. Um, preventing what does preventing it Preventing human papillomavirus, which is the virus that, a sexually transmitted virus that causes cervical cancer, which is now given to boys and girls because it's given to boys to prevent the spread of the virus to, to, to girls. And also... No one really, really don't want to be thinking about this, but it, it can also protect against genital warts, which is not a very pleasant thing, but actually you know, really not pleasant to get. So if you can protect, prevent against it, um, that's only a good thing. Um, so that's usually it's usually pretty straightforward to get boys to consent to vaccinate if you tell them they're not going to get genital warts. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, so I would certainly, I'd certainly advise. Uh, I'd certainly, my children will certainly have that. And but do you think that? You know, there's a generation of 15 to 20 year olds nowadays are a bit more savvy and careful than potentially generations yes. before. Yeah, I definitely see that. I mean, I wasn't adopted as a generation before, but I'm often pleasantly surprised by how knowledgeable and responsible teenagers are because they, they are better educated. They are they know more. They understand more. They, they are wanting to mitigate their own risks more than teenagers in the 60s. Yeah, when it was just less likely you'd have that conversation with your parents or with you know even with a teacher. I mean, mm. sex education I don't think was compulsory in schools till relatively mm. recently, mm. and and that's probably social media is is also you know to thank for that too. But then social media also has its risks. So I was reading the other day that the biggest killer of young children is um, is, is suicide. It's the leading cause of of death. In young people in, in the young UK, people, not children, but young people. Yeah. Young people in the UK. So, so I mean, that really took me by surprise. Yeah, yeah, and uh, but it but it is there. It's very real. You know, mental health is a huge problem in the young um, at the moment, and of course that like, that is fueled by social media, but it's also fueled by other other um, other pressures. You know, difficult family circumstances, obviously, kind of abuse in the home. That's sort a of thing, but. More often not, and certainly in the in the demographic I look after, um, a lot is triggered by pressure, academic pressure, um, and and feeling that they're not achieving and meeting the the expectations of their teachers or their parents. 
So pushy parenting, basically parents saying, well, you, you can't need say to pushy get into... parenting causes suicide, but yeah. it's it's. Um... But it's it's. What I'm saying is that it's parents trying to be good parents. Yeah. Who are doing quite the opposite. Who you... can be doing? I mean, yeah. sometimes that's absolutely what a child needs and wants and thrives on is 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 pushy parents or you know being being parents being... who invested in their children. Yeah, exactly. Um, but it's about recognising the signs and um, symptoms of a child who is struggling with a mood disorder or any kind of sort of um, potential psychiatric problem that could lead to them taking their own life, which is utterly devastating. And I guess also just understanding the importance of happiness. I mean, you know, ultimately, if if our children aren't happy, if, you know, we haven't, enabled them to be happy then what do they have like it is for me it is the most important thing and and it's a real priority in our in our family Mm. um I'd much rather my children are happy and slightly less high achieving than desperately unhappy but achieving those marks we all want a happy balance don't we want our children to do well in life and to to succeed but we also I mean no parent is going to say they want their children to be unhappy so we're all striving for the same outcome but it it's of um, it depends how we choose to get there. Um, and I think it's understanding that sometimes that can lead to an outcome that you just weren't expecting and, and that wasn't right for your child. Um, and, and, and as I said, depression, anxiety, and then self-harm and potential suicide is, is, um, is there, is real. And, um, you know, the, 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 you, know you, you look at the stats for... Um, for you know, support charities like Childline, and you know the the, the last year, uh, I was just looking at it just earlier. I think they said over six hundred calls from children under eleven with suicidal thoughts and feelings. You know, that's you don't think of children that young having and those, those are the children that are feelings. calling up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. That's not by all means not every child. Yeah. Yeah. So what can we do with parents? I mean, for me, mental health and prospect of suicide is, is really frightening. And it's something that I've never experienced. But as a parent, what what can we do to prevent that or to mitigate these risks? Well, I think there's lots of conversation around it now, which is so important. Um, and I think understanding as a parent who might never have suffered with any mental health problem, how to help your child who is or who might be or how to recognise it, it uh, is 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 really important. And what what would the symptoms be of of a child? Because they will get a bit hormonal. Well, that's it. You know, often it can it can be a bit confused with just the hormone changes that happen when children become teenagers or go through adolescence. Um, but you're looking for your you know signs that your child is sort of increasingly withdrawn, not just from you as a family, but also from their friends. Um, you know, low mood, not seeming to have much fun. Um, being by themselves a lot, um, worrying a lot, uh, you know, you you sort of often get a feeling, um, and uh, and it's about acting on that feeling and, and having that conversation if you can. Um, but often, you know, very often you speak to parents, and there just haven't been any signs. You know, children are good at, are good at masking feelings, or you know, especially older children. And I guess talking to them about I mean I don't know how easy it is to monitor their activity on social media but often I've heard stories of children who've got sort of double lives on social media and there was that dreadful story of the young girl who'd you know um, visited suicide sites I know Mm. that there was a story Mm. recently that on TikTok there was a live stream of a suicide Mm. and Mm. just I guess being aware of their social 
media mm. usage, what sites they're Speaking on. Speaking to other parents of their friends particularly, seeing if if there is any history of self-harm in their friends. Um, you know, there's a lot, often a lot of copying behaviour around in that age group. Um, so I think it's it's trying to be present as much as you can in your child's life as they get older and being aware of what they're interested in and then subsequently potentially not interested in so you can see that there's been a change. Um, uh, and having conversations around it. You know, I think you know, starting from as early age as possible, having open, frank, honest, sometimes difficult conversations with your children will allow them to um, have those conversations with you as they get older. Mm. Um, and it's about, uh, it's about listening and hearing your child. Yeah. And also, I guess also acknowledging that you're not always able to fix it. You know, if they've mm. had a rubbish day at school mm. or they've fallen out with their friend or they're frustrated with Latin because they think it's a total waste of time, mm. you can't suddenly make it better. But what you can do, we talked about this on the podcast a, a couple of months ago, was the idea of just being with your child and mm. acknowledging their mm. feelings, that mm. frustration is a feeling we all have and it's a valid emotion and to be with them. and We just, as parents are a sort of programmed to be fixers. And it actually, especially around mental health, um, that's not what people. That's not people. What people need, they need. They need people to listen. They need their parents to be listening. That's all. Yeah. Um, and and then potentially, you know, working together to try and find solutions. Um, but the more you listen, the more they talk. And I guess if they trust that you will listen and you can communicate they're more likely to communicate when life gets a little harder and that you won't judge them you know if they have parents who are going to absolutely lose it if they don't get the the mark they're expecting in the exam or they haven't played their sport as well as they could they're much less likely to to talk um compared to if they if they feel like they they, you know they're not going to be judged or um or sort of um brought down because of it there's a big I think one of the biggest misconceptions about being a parent is that toddlers need you more than older children mm. and fine you know your 10 year old or 12 year old does not need you to wipe her bottom or wash her hair but they need you so much more emotionally don't they well I mean a, a toddler is no doubt much more exhausting physically to look after than a, than a 12 year old um, you know everyone remembers what it's like to that relentless that, you know, grind just, of it is just relentless um especially when they're on that suicide mission constantly as a two-year-old <laughs> you know um but um but certainly emotionally they need a lot more from you as they grow up um you know there's the anecdote of little children little problems big children big problems and that is without a doubt true um but um but that doesn't mean there aren't ways of of managing it and but I suppose also if we're anticipating that actually they do need quite a lot of our time and so just when we are scheduling our life and we're thinking about work and we're thinking about flexible working we are thinking well you know just because my child's 14 doesn't mean I don't need to be home till 10 every night mm-hmm. actually just thinking do you know what it would be so good a couple of nights a week for me to be around in the evening so that we can have dinner mm-hmm. so that we can I mean I know it's not easy for everyone but at least just acknowledging that that's what you will be needing because I think so many people have a bit of a shock that actually their children what's going on they have are, no idea what's going yeah. on I think actually uh, dinner is a really important one I've found with families with older children I look after that um sort of making a habit of sitting down as a family for a meal as often as you can 
is really good because it forces that conversation. It forces everyone to be together. It it's um, really good for communication and for opening up and for getting a feel of how each child is that day. Yeah. So even if it is breakfast or if you know, yeah. it doesn't need to be some fancy schmancy no, meal, no, it's, it's just just sitting at the table and eating yeah. your food rather than sitting in front of the TV or everyone sitting in their own room. Yeah. And also, I suppose, going for walks and mm -hmm. if you can, just that sort of walking and talking, I've always found a really good way of communicating mm. with my children. Yeah, but sometimes it's difficult to persuade a bolshy 14-year-old to come for a walk with you for no reason. You know, whereas get lunch a dog. is lunch. <laughs> yeah, get a dog. Dogs <laughs> yeah, solve every problem. <laughs> You're right. And actually, you know, increasingly in schools, they've got, you know, I don't know what they call them, mental emotional health dogs, support emotional animals. support. Yeah, mm. because actually they say that sort of stroking an animal mm -hmm. just, calms you immediately um yeah if you like animals yeah <laughs> get a guinea pig yeah <laughs> kiara it's been great i feel um i suppose at the heart of this it's, it's communication isn't it uh, well and, and understanding that our, we have to uh, understand that, that of course childhood is fraught with risks but that's okay and you know we just have to go with the flow and not worry too much about it just do what we can to minimize those within reason um, because we also have to allow our children to grow and flourish and learn from their mistakes and from their accidents. And I suppose as a parent, there's only so much you can do, isn't there? And if you know that you've done your best, whether it's putting in, you know, baby-proofing your house, driving a really good car, <laughs> or having, you know, the, the conversations that need to be had, then you've done what you can. It doesn't totally yeah, I mean, eliminate listen, if the If you risk. have a car crash and... You know, if you have a car crash, which is an awful accident, and your child wasn't in the car seat when they should have been, and they're injured, you, you know, you're going to feel awful about that. So why would you ever put yourself in that situation? If you let your child ride their scooter without the helmet, and they, you know, they have, they hit their lamppost and they hit their head, you're never, you're not going to forgive yourself for that. So just don't let it happen. Yeah. Thank you, Kiara. <laughs> Pragmatic advice, as always. <laughs> um, you, thank you for listening to this episode of The Parenthood. You can subscribe, rate and review us wherever you've got this podcast from. Please do also share the podcast with friends of yours. You can follow me on Instagram. I'm at marina.fogel. But in the meantime, from Kiara and me, thanks for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.